The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. I've, I've really enjoyed the series that we've been in, Recalibrate. It's been so good for me, uh, and, and I hope it's been good for you, but just know, like, 99% of the time when I'm up here, I'm preaching to myself, and so I'm like, I'm, I'm talking at myself, and so it's been really helpful for me to be reminded of, of one, the gospel of grace that, that God has bestowed us with, to be reminded of the identity uh, as a family of missionary servants and learners that God has created us to be in our gospel identity and then to remind ourselves and remember the, the rhythms that this creates, right? When you live in identity, it creates rhythms. And as we collectively live in this identity together, we create a gospel culture. And so it's been really good for me and I think for our church. Because whenever a church is serious about gospel doctrine, right, the ample grace that God has for us in Christ for the undeserving sinner that church will intentionally create a gospel culture. And a gospel culture is basically a shared experience of grace for the undeserving. How that grace permeates relationships. It creates a vibe. It establishes values and characteristics that resemble the kingdom of God. 
So much so, when people step into a church with a gospel culture, they should think, if this is what God's about, I could get on board with this. You see, that's the difference between a gospel culture and a church culture that's rooted in religion. Religion is cold and and judgy. It's about following the rules. It's cumbersome, joyless, hypocritical. It feels like air is being sucked out of the room. A culture that's rooted in religion pushes people away. It repels people. At best, it's lackluster, and more commonly, it's soul-damaging. But a gospel culture, that's different. There's life. There's vibrancy. There's untamable optimism because in the gospel, our future is incredibly bright. It carries the aroma of Christ where people step in the room and it's like, yeah, Jesus has been here. There's freedom instead of restriction. Rather than heavy-handed judgedness, there is gentleness, humility, grace, and patience, joy, and peace. Now, to be in a gospel culture and to give yourself to creating a gospel culture will sweeten the totality of your human experience. It's that powerful. And thankfully, Scripture has ample examples of what a gospel culture looks like. It paints a picture over and over. You can go to passages like Romans 12 or Colossians 3, where we see the apostle writing and he's explaining what this gospel culture looks like, how it's specifically an alternate culture to the mainstream culture of society. Now, in a gospel culture, the driving force is always love, always Love and compassion for others motivates what we do. It's a culture where forgiveness is more common than resentment. Where kindness, meekness, humility, and patience are more valuable than convenience, productivity, and money. Now I want to close this section of our series of Recalibrate as we dig through what a gospel culture looks like with looking at two pieces of a gospel culture that are antithetical to the mainstream culture. That they're actually opposing, they're they're resistant to the values that society has. In fact, these are two pieces that when society looks at them, society says those two things can't be put together. It's got to be one or the other. And what I'm talking about is honesty and honor. But if we remove these two elements from a gospel culture, a gospel culture rapidly devolves into a religious culture. And so it is important for us to be aware of these, honor, uh, of honesty and honor. In a commencement speech from 2005, the late, great David Foster Wallace, who's perhaps one of the greatest novelists of our time, told a parable where there were were two young fish swimming along, minding their business, nice morning, and they cross paths with an older, wiser fish that says, good morning, fellas, how's the water? And they give a nod and they carry on swimming. And one of them stops and looks at the other and says, What the heck is water? Now this parable is is 
meant to, to, to point to the, the reality that we tend to be oblivious to our surroundings. Though we're immersed in them, right, though we're swimming through the water of our culture, we tend to be oblivious to these things, specifically the values and principles that maybe are underlying, that carry out everything in our culture. Unless you've been immersed in a different culture or have been submersed into a new culture, it's really hard to be aware of how these things are at play, how these values affect the human experience. And for many of us, especially if you've lived in the Midwest all your life, these are the only values that we know, right? This is the culture, this is society that we've grown up in. And so what I'd like to do before we get into the values of a gospel culture is highlight some of the values that the mainstream culture has that are opposed to a gospel culture. And those, those two things are strength and self-importance. Now maybe those aren't the first two things to pop in your mind when we think about what our culture values. But if you think about it and if you really examine our society, one of the most valuable things that we value is strength or power. Now, I'm not talking about physical strength, though there is an obsession with moving heavy objects, right? There's always gyms. I bet, I'm willing to bet, there's more people that go to gyms uh, throughout the week than come to church on Sunday mornings. But what I'm talking about isn't necessarily the physical strength. I'm talking about this inner emotional, relational, and mental strength that assures you, you can do it. That tells you if you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, if you bear down, you can push through this. It's the voice that says, you don't need help. Just fight the tears back. Don't let them see you cry. And if you pay attention, if you really pay attention, not only will you see this within the culture of this value of strength, you'll start to notice the self-talk that you've got going on. Right, that, that it's very likely that you are, your life is filled with these mini pep talks that you can get through the day. Just press on. Now the reason we, val- we value strength in our culture is because it is the home remedy for what we perceive as the disease of weakness. Right, it's a cover-up for Vulnerability. If we can exert ourselves as looking strong or put up an image of strength, we, are not, we don't look weak in the eyes of other people. Because no, excuse me, nobody loves to feel weak. I just think how many times, maybe even this week, have you declined the question, do you need help with that? And for some of us, that, that's a question that's not just a question, it's an, it's an accusation It's an accusation that we are maybe incompetent or have weak character, that there's something wrong with us, that we're incapable of doing things on our own. When this happens, when weakness is exposed, we tend to feel really vulnerable. To allow the real you to show through, to let your your weakness arise to the top, to to be without a filter, that's kind of scary. Because when the real you is exposed, not only do you, do you see your weakness and your brokenness and the sin and the mess of life, 
When all your stuff is visible to others, we feel out of control. We feel disadvantaged. We feel like we're at the mercy of other people, which is one of the reasons why we like to conceal weakness so badly, that we want to be strong so we, don't, so we keep the upper hand. And projecting strength is how we do that. And, and let me tell you, most of the strength that, that we chase after or try to put forward isn't really strength at all. It's just an illusion. As we project this illusion of strength and power, what happens is we start to buy into it ourselves. Right? We, we start to have this mentality, right, actually, I, I, am, pretty, I am pretty strong. I am pretty great. Look at what I did. Right? This mentality inflates our self-importance. And so we, we want to be discovered, right? I'm a somebody. People should take note of me. They should see what I'm like. And social media has morphed into a platform for social networking and keeping in contact with people to a platform where people are constantly exerting their own self-importance. Now, we may not realize this, but when we fall into this routine, in this rut even, it is very damaging to our relationships. In fact, it, it threatens the quality of life that we live. Because if we're bought into this, the values of strength and, and self-importance that our culture uh, perpetuates, it means that, that when we see weakness in other people, it's likely that we have no compassion for them. We have this mentality, I got through that, why can't you? Right? Why can't you pull yourself up by the bootstraps? And what happens is there's now this bent internally where we would rather humiliate someone than help them. That's, that's one way. The other way that it, it hampers our relationships is that when we see someone else who's maybe actually really strong, when they're excelling in an area maybe where we're weak in, we start to criticize, to take them down a notch. We become, we become critical and nitpick their power, their strength, their greatness. Now when you see these underlying values, it's really easy to see why humiliation and criticism have become socially acceptable in the ways that we interact with each other in our culture. Now, sometimes it's blatant. Sometimes it's blatant humiliation. Sometimes it's blatant criticism. But most of the time, especially within our closer relationships, it doesn't look like this blatant offense. It looks like, uh, it looks like it's disguised in backhanded compliments, in sarcasm, in jokes. See, this kind of culture that we find ourselves in is dehumanizing. When you really look at it, it's no wonder why suicide rates have skyrocketed. It's no wonder why kids are having such a hard time with bullying and why that's such an issue right now. But today's passage paints a great picture of, of how the gospel culture is in stark contrast to our mainstream culture. It's a culture that values honesty, over strength. And those seem like two things, right? How does honesty and strength, how are they opposite ends of the spectrum? The strength that we're pursuing in culture is actually just to cover up weakness. And so 
The gospel culture values honesty over strength. Honesty about our weakness and our brokenness, about who we really are. Instead of self-importance, a gospel culture is a place where other people are honored. Where we get more joy out of seeing others elevated than we get to see out of them being brought down. And those are the two things that I want to highlight today. They're not flashy. They're, They're typically not the first things that come to mind when you think of a gospel culture. But they are essential for for creating a gospel culture and sustaining one. They're often overlooked. So when I talk about honesty, I'm not just talking about being a good little boy or good little girl and and telling the truth. No more white lies. You know, no more fibs. This this isn't a lecture about being a more moral person. Christian honesty is bigger. It is more profound than that. To live honestly as a Christian means to live a life without any deception. And that's what Paul gets at here in verses 25 through 28. If you want to open up your Bibles, Ephesians 4. We're going to skip past verses 17 through 24. And we're going to sit right here in verse 25. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each, of, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now in this passage we can see three areas of honesty. Head, heart, and hands. And what we say with what we feel and what we do. Now the easiest way to to, to approach this topic is to work backwards. So I'm going to start with what we do, how we work. The Apostle Paul says that gospel people do honest work. Work that is void of falsehood or manipulation. Work that doesn't exploit other people. Now, for the original audience that Paul's talking to here, Ephesus was a, a, a cultural, busy city. Lots of things, lot, let's say, lots of pagan things were going on in the city. Lots of Christians had jobs working in, in temples that were to pagan gods, in markets that were supported by the worship of pagan gods. And so when Paul says to do honest work, this might very well mean for his original audience that there'd be a career change in their near future. Because it's really hard to honor God when you're doing immoral work, right? It's really hard to honor God and be a drug dealer. It's really hard to honor God and be in in the sex industry, right? If that's the case, you need a change of career. But this also means that Christians should be the most conscious, conscious, friendly people to work for and to work with. Right? That Christians, whether, be, whether they be employers or employees, that they would be forthright. And one thing that I see in the city a lot is uh, companies who have like a little cross on their bumper sticker or business card, a little ichthys, the Jesus fish, you know. And what that should be is a symbol 
that these people are honest, they're, they're providing the top-notch, top-caliber service or good to our city. Right, this should be an indicator that, that we are honest people. We don't cut corners. We don't lie to bosses or clients to save face. We don't fudge expense reports. We don't tilt the scales in our, in our favor. Now, as a former car salesman, I, I felt this. I worked in an industry that... Car salesmen are not known for their honesty, right? You step in a car dealership and you're instantly skeptical. How's this guy gonna rip me off? As a Christian car salesman, I had to learn the implications of what this looked like. Now, while I saw some of my coworkers getting ahead by, by, by lying or maybe just the absence of truth, they were selling more cars than me, they were making more money than me, I had to commit myself to working honestly to providing the best service, offering the best good. Now, in every industry, there's the opportunity to be corrupt. And so as Christians, we have to consider what it looks like to do honest work. And as we do this, as we live in our city, as we do honest work for the people in our city, this is one of the ways that we glorify God and work for the renewal of our city. That our city actually improves when Christians are working hard and honestly. Now what this external honesty points to is is ultimately an internal transformation that happens in the heart. Where dishonest thieves, people who are inclined towards lying and falsehood, are now turned into generous contributors. See, that's how the gospel played out in Zacchaeus' life. Do you remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Right, Zacchaeus, he did not do honest work. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors were known for taking advantage of the people that they were taxing. And so he would say, hey, this is what you owe the government. Oh, by the way, you owe me double that for me. And so he started uh, accumulating wealth. People did not like him. That's one of the reasons why he had to climb up in his little sycamore tree. But then when, when Zacchaeus met Jesus... This thief, this dishonest man, he, he turned, not only was he converted, not only did he believe in Jesus, but he was transformed from this, this greedy, selfish thief into a generous contributor. Where he went, he acknowledged his wrongdoings and went and he repaid everyone fourfold what he had taken from them in the first place. See, this is what gospel change looks like. It reorients everything that you do. Now, hidden in this honesty of work is another value that I wanted to add to to this week. I didn't have a ton of time, but I can't just breeze past it. But the reason we do honest work is so that we can live generously. That's what Paul says here. If I can find my spot. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, to live generously begins with first living generously toward God. Because God has lived generously towards you. Everything that you have, your skill set, your job, your income, your house, everything is a gift from God. And the way that you glorify God and live generously back towards God is by giving him your first fruits, contributing to the mission of God, the mission of the church. 
But the second way is to live generously towards others in your life who you can bless. Right, to work in a way that you're not accumulating money for your own self, for your own comfort, but trying to, to do it in a way that helps other people you love. That is what an honest work is meant to accomplish, generosity. So that's the first part. We work honestly. But how do Christians say and feel honestly? This might be uncharted territory for some people. In fact, this, this pushes back on a lot of society's norms where we would rather sort of pent up to ourself. Unless you have a screen in front of you, then you can be honest, right? Then you blast somebody on Facebook. But verse 25 says this. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, this doesn't mean you walk around like some insensitive truth bomber. bomber, right? Your job in the world is not to set everybody straight and just blast them with truth. But verse 25 does say to speak truth to your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Now, in another passage of Scripture, neighbor means anybody in your general vicinity. But, but right here in this context in which the Apostle Paul is writing, your neighbor is your missional community family your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's your church family. And again, we can come back, I think this is maybe like the third week in the row where we come back to the Apostle Paul's words in in Ephesians 4.15 where he says, speak the truth in love. So we have to remember that when we're speaking truth to our neighbor, we do so in love. But speaking truth isn't this generic one size fits all, Jesus died for your sins and he loves you. That, that's true. But to effectively speak truth into somebody's life, you must know the real them, the unedited version of themselves. It means you have to know their story. You've got to know their wounds, their aches, the triumphs, their desires, their dreams. What makes them tick? What is it that they crave? Now, if somebody in your MC is just, they come to MC one night, they're anxious. Nine times out of ten, we're better off listening first to hear exactly what they're facing, right? Getting into their story. Because a lot of times, speaking up without listening can come across as unloving. Right? This is a problem that men often face in marriages where the wife is sharing her struggles or what she's going through, and she just wants somebody to listen, and he comes in as this problem solver. Right? And his intentions are to be loving, but it's not interpreted like that. And so we sit in their store. We know them. We know their wounds and their hurts. So then that way, with the Spirit's help, we might be aware of not just the fruit issue, not, not the external surface level issue that's going on and causing anxiety, but we can get to the heart issue, get to the root of the matter, to the heart level where there's unbelief. So we don't just deal with the fruit of their life, we get to the root. I 
And as we're listening to their story, as we're listening to what's going on, like these underlying, maybe, maybe you'll find unbelief. But we're also listening to the Holy Spirit speak to us as well. The Holy Spirit is the one that guides us and, and opens up our ears to hear what's right in front of us. And so we listen to the Holy Spirit and we ask, God, what are you doing? What are you trying to do here? What, what is the truth that they really need to hear? How does the gospel apply to their situation? And then in asking these questions and listening, that's when we can lean into the word and the spirit to direct us and share with them to speak truth to our neighbor. We do so in the context of relationship and trust. That's where truth is most potent. To do this requires confidence, right? Like to actually speak up and to say something meaningful. But this isn't a confidence in yourself. This isn't a confidence in what you know, but this is a confidence in the spirit and how the spirit of God is working in you and through you. So we speak honestly to our neighbor. Now, sometimes that means saying a hard word, right? It doesn't mean we sugarcoat stuff. Just because we're speaking in love doesn't mean it's all candy canes and lollipops. Right? This might be a hard conversation that we have to enter into, but we do it because we love them. And one of the implications of speaking honestly is that we must be truthful about weakness, about our mess, the unbelief and sin in our own life. It means we have to be the kind of person that your MC has access to meaningfully speak into your life. And this only happens by being the real you. Get rid of the filters. Stop editing yourself. Let the real you be out, right? Mess and all, even your emotions. That's what 20, verse 26 and 27 get after here, the heart. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, I think that there has been a history within Christian circles, specifically conservative Christian circles, to have to deny your emotions, right? Check them at the door. But that's not the case. Now, for those of you who are in touch with your emotions, who are, who are intuitive or, or emotionally, have a, have a broad palate emotionally, this might be a relief for you, right? Finally, an outlet, I can, I can share myself and for others of you, this is terrifying, right? If someone were to ask you, maybe you can't even list off more than three emotions. I didn't know there was anything other than confused and angry. But sharing yourself, the real you, is the best gift that you can give to your missional community family. It's a blessing to them Right? It's encouraging to them, but it's also the way in which you will be blessed and be encouraged as well. Right? That, that gives them permission, that gives them access to really care for you, to step into your world. That gives them the ability to actually speak meaningful truth into your life. 
Now the messy part of this is that when someone sins against you, when somebody hurts you, you have permission to address that. You have, you have a permission to step into the way that you feel, to step into your anger and do not sin. Right? To, to work through the emotions. Right now, some people ignore emotions, some people overindulge in emotions, but emotions are a gift from God and they're meant to launch us toward him. They point us toward what is good, what is right, what is true. Anger leads us to justice. Sadness leads us to the good life, to bliss. Fear leads us to comfort. Right, and so it, it, it's okay for us to express our emotions, to, to speak them. Now, anytime there are sinners in the room together, interacting together, doing life on life, people will get sinned against. It shouldn't be a shocker. Right, somebody's gonna say something that's offensive, that hurts you, and what verse 27 and 28 give us is, is permission to speak up. Permission to say, brother, that hurt me. Can we talk through this? Because here's why. In verse 27, Paul says, be angry, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the devil get in and ruin what God has going on. When sin goes unaddressed in community, it will kill community. It will ruin trust. It pushes people further and further from one another. This is the way that Satan gets in and undermines the work that God is doing. But if we address sin for what it is, graciously, humbly, and if we believe the gospel together, this makes Christian community unshakable. Now I realize honesty is scary business. This is one of the reasons why mega churches uh, are so appealing to some people. Right? You walk in the doors and you're unknown. Right? You can fly under the radar. You don't have to be honest with people. That's not only true in larger churches. That can happen within smaller churches as well, just like ours. Where people end up knowing more trivia about you, like where you work, what you do, where you went to school, information about your kids. And they don't know the real you. It's possible. And it's scary work. Being honest about the real you, what's going on inside of your heart, leaves you vulnerable. And there certainly is danger here, or, or at least uh, perceived danger, in, in the way that your vulnerability could be used against you. Right? If you find yourself within a judgy religious culture, that's probably going to happen. And fear and distrust will keep us from embracing the weakness and living vulnerably with our church family. But let me, let me just say this. If you can't be yourself with your church family, good luck being vulnerable with any other person in this world. The church is the safest place to be weak. 
to be vulnerable. Because gospel people know the worst thing about you before you even share your name with them. Do you know that? Gospel people already know the worst thing about you. Because the cross says that you are a deplorable sinner with glaring weaknesses. But the cross also says you're ferociously loved. See, those are two things that gospel people have to hold together in order to create a gospel culture. In fact, this is what verses 17 through 24 are all about. Paul says, you used to be like the Gentiles, the unbelievers, who you used to walk in their ways, alienated from God. You were ignorant, hard-hearted, emotionally unstable, callously sensual. You were greedy and defiled. That's the way that you once lived. That's the worst thing about you. And he goes on to say, that stuff doesn't define you any longer. Not if you have learned Christ. See, no longer do you stand condemned, but in Christ you are clothed in righteousness and holiness. Take a look at verse 22. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self created after, listen, your new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the new self. Now, there's a common misunderstanding with this passage that I just like to clear up because this is a game changer. A lot of people think that this act of putting on and off is a daily thing. Right? Put off the old self, put on the new self. Every day, 6.30 a.m., old self off, new self on. But the way that Paul talks about this and, and, and the sentence structure that he uses in the Greek, this isn't a daily routine. This is something that has been concrete. This is concrete. It's been accomplished in the past. That your old self has been put off and the new self is on. That you are, in fact, a new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. But the daily act of every Christian is to renew your mind in the reality of who God has already made you to be. That's the daily work of a Christian. This is how we become who we already are. That's a mind trip, right? God says you are righteous, you are holy, and you look at your life as like, I sinned on the way to church this morning. God says, no, no, renew your mind. Remember who you are. You are holy and righteous in Christ. Right? We're becoming who we already are. We're growing into our gospel identity that we are indeed new creations. That our lives are not defined by what we used to do or even by the things that we're doing now, but our lives are defined by Christ. See, this is why it is safe to be honest in a gospel culture because the same is true of everyone. There's no one who's exempt from that truth. Sin, weakness, and struggle might look different from person to person, but we're all playing on the same field. We're all weak, feeble sinners in need of God's grace. 
Now keep that in mind. When you're sitting in missional community and you're sitting there and you're so afraid to share because the person across the room, they just look like they got their life put together. They've got things figured out. And you're like, oh man, I don't, want, I don't want them to know that I'm like this way. Remember, they're just like you. They don't have it figured out. They've got their own weaknesses. They've got their own vulnerabilities. And so it's safe to share here. It's safe to be honest with our church family. Now, we're typically afraid, I'm wrapping up here, we're typically afraid to be honest because what happens in the, the, the larger context of society and culture, to be honest means that you'll probably be shamed. Right? You expose yourself for who you are and people start judging you, critiquing the way that you are, trying to humiliate you. But in a gospel culture, that does not happen. In fact, it's the opposite. In a gospel culture, we find honor. Now take a look here at verses 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as in good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, within the Christian context of community here, we are to build one another up. To honor one another with our words. Not in a way that's exaggerated. Not, not in a phony, gimmicky, half-hearted sort of way. Not, not to stroke ego. But honestly, building one another up. Truthfully. And what happens when we do that? We promote grace. To speak this way to your Christian brother and sister is to be gracious toward them. To show them honor. In fact, Romans 12.10, this is one of the sweet passages of a, a Christian uh, or a gospel culture. Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. Can you imagine what it would be like to be part of a community that's just trying to one-up each other by showing honor? Isn't that a place where you want to be? I know I do. Now this concept of showing honor seems pretty foreign. Our culture, our society doesn't really have a framework for this, but, but to, to show honor means to assert one's value. Right? It's to, to look at your brother and sister in view of the gospel and say, God is doing something incredible. It's, it's not to look at them by who they were or their current struggles, but who they have been made into in the likeness of God. Now, this means that Christians should be the most encouraging and affirm, affirming people in our city. That we can honestly look at our brothers and sisters and say, I am seeing God do so much work in your heart. All right, even within our homes. I, one of the things I've been really convicted over the last couple weeks by my son Kuiper is one of the sweetest, generous, loving kids. And I'm not just saying that because he's my own kid. Maybe I am. But he convicts me because I see I'm not like that. And what I could do, I could stroke his ego and say, oh, Kuiper, you're such a great kid. But I look at him in view in the gospel. I say, Kuiper, God is doing a good work in you, buddy. 
Look at the way that you're loving your friends and sharing your toys and doing this. Just think of how we, what our, our communities would be like if we talked to one another like that. That's powerful. See, to be in Christian community and to, to honor people requires having a gospel lens to see our brothers and sisters through. It, Michelangelo was, when he was making David, he asked how he did it. You know, I don't know if that's actually a true story, but this, I think it might be it's a par- parable of some sort, but it's coming to my mind right now. He asked, how'd you do it? He says, I just chipped away the things that weren't David. In Christian community, we need to be able to have eyes to see the David in our brothers and sisters. People are still work in progress. We're being sanctified. As we're sanctified, be glorified. Make us more like Christ. To be Christians means to look at our brothers and sisters through this lens. What God's doing. Now there's also a caution here. Because to treat our brothers and sisters as anything less than a masterpiece that God is creating would be to grieve the spirit by ignoring God's work in them. To disregard it, to to push them aside, to critique and criticize, that grieves the spirit. And if we forget the grace of God is at work in them, then we're not too far from forgetting about the grace of God that's in work in ourselves. When we, when we forget the gospel, we become bitter. That's what verse 31 is all about. We become bitter and angry, vengeful, create clamor, we slander one another, we're critical, there's malice. See, that's the stuff that happens when we forget the gospel. It starts to ruin Christian community. It destroys, self-implodes Christian culture. But if by the grace of God we keep the gospel in view, we are able to follow through on creating a culture of of honesty and honor. That's what verse 32 wraps things up with. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He even goes on in chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Follow in your daddy's footsteps and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, this is what a culture of honesty and honor looks like, to be kind, patient, loving, to be tenderhearted, to be forgiving and enduring with one another, to let the ugly hang out and be okay with it. I think that's one of the biggest fears when people share who they really are in missional community. We we feel like we have this agenda that by the end of the night we have to fix this person. That will tank honesty in community. That it's God's work to bring transformation and renewal. But we cultivate kindness and tenderheartedness, forgiveness. That's what honor looks like when it's directed at our church family where we're outdoing one another with honor. Now, 
the bulk of the sermon has been directed at each other, right? How we interact with each other, what, what a gospel community, gospel culture feels like. But in order to do this, in order for this to sustain and to last, we first need to be honest about ourselves before the Lord. We need to go to him. Father, nothing in my hands I bring. I've got nothing to offer. I've got no strength in myself. It's to the cross I cling. See, when you can be honest with the Lord, that's when you can start being honest with your church family. When you're honest with the Lord, he doesn't shame you. He doesn't put you down. He doesn't make you feel like an idiot. You come before the Lord honestly, what does he do? Those who humble themselves are exalted. That he lifts us up, that we are seated with Christ in the heavens. There is no place that contains more honor than with Christ at the right hand of God. And this meal that we come to to share in together this morning is a reminder of that, that you are so sinful. The honesty of being weak and vulnerable and sinful and broken, that you're so sinful that Jesus had to die, that his blood had to be shed, his body had to be broken, but you're so loved that he did it willingly with a full heart so that you could be exalted and be honored in his name. Father, we thank you for the grace of your gospel. We thank you for the person and work of Jesus who shows us what it's like to live a life of honesty and honor, that even our Savior was honest. On the cross, his dying words, Father, why have you forsaken me? That he was pushed out so that we could be brought in, that he was put down so we could be brought up. So we thank you, Father. I pray that your spirit would be strong in us, Help us in the renewing of our minds to, to become who we already are in Christ, to live as the new self in holiness and in righteousness. Would this meal sustain us and drive us toward that? Would our communities be like the aroma of Christ? When people step into our missional communities, they can smell Jesus in the air. Would you help us to be the kind of church where transformation is valued that we're, that we're not okay with being who we are. We're not okay with being stuck in our sin. We're not okay with, with living half-hearted, dishonest lives. We want to live before you. Hebrews tells us that, that you know everything, that before you everything is laid bare. Father, would you help us to bring ourselves and lay bare before you? And Father, would we see how you in our nakedness, have clothed us with righteousness in Christ. Oh, what a gift. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.